Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. While most U.S. media attention among both mainstream and independent outlets remains dominated by the recent and upcoming events at the U.S. Capitol, economic calamity in the U.S. and globally is quickly approaching. Though the realities of the economic situation are drastically undercovered in media today, there is even more silence surrounding the plans to introduce a new and truly Orwellian economic system in its aftermath, a system which forms a critical part of the efforts by the global elite to reset the modern way of life for their benefit. To discuss the current and upcoming economic situation, particularly as it relates to the coming reset for global currencies, I am joined today by Catherine Austin Fitz. Catherine is the president of Solari Inc., which publishes the Solari Report, and she is also a managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services. Prior to her work at Solari, she held top positions at the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dillon Reed & Co., and was also Assistant Secretary of Housing and the Federal Housing Commissioner for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. For longtime followers of independent media, Catherine's name may be familiar, particularly for her investigations with economics professor Mark Skidmore into the missing trillions stolen out of U.S. government accounts, including from the Department of Defense and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as her work on exposing FASAB 56, the relatively new government accounting practice that both enables and obfuscates the mass theft of taxpayer money from U.S. government accounts. More recently, in the post-COVID age, Catherine has been very active in the independent media circuit, with one of her more recent appearances, an interview featured in the film Planet Lockdown, was taken off of YouTube after racking up over 2 million views in just a couple of weeks. So thanks for joining me today, Catherine. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. Thank you, Whitney. And you forgot to mention I'm a member in good standing of the Whitney Webb fan club. <laughs> oh, well, wonderful. That's great to hear. <laughs> so I wanted to start off talking about the... Uh, subject of a recent report of yours called The State of Our Currencies and the Current Economic Situation in General. So 2020, thanks to lockdowns and the deliberate destruction of certain industries, you know, this has created an economic fallout that we still have yet to really fully experience, and a fact that may shape 2021 more than many currently realize. Uh, but also we have the fact that the so-called relief bills uh, passed by Congress uh, uh, over the past year or so enabled uh, honestly insane activity from the U.S.'s central bank, the Federal Reserve. So, uh, Catherine, what is the state of our currencies and how do you see this controlled demolition of the global economy playing out over the next several months? So in August 2019, the G7 central banks approved a plan called the Going Direct Reset. And in my view of the world, the going direct reset has two goals. One is to keep the dollar system going. Uh, so, so the process expands the dollar as reserve currency for longer while they bring in a new system. And I would describe the new system as the end of currencies because they're looking on at bringing in a financial transaction system that's all digital and is literally a complete control system. We saw a great presentation on cross-border payments by the IMF uh, during the most recent round of IMF World Bank meetings. And you had the, the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank for the central banks in Basel, Switzerland. <laughs> and he was in a discussion with Jay Powell, the head of the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank. And he said, oh, well, yes, but with the, the central bank's uh, digital currencies, you'll be able to turn off 
the money and stop any non-citizen from using the currency if you want, which, of course, any financial person understands means you can turn off anybody's money on and off. So this this is a control system, and it's it's no longer uh, – a central bank digital currency system is no longer a currency system. It's really a credit at the company store. So we see the central bankers trying to keep the dollar reserve system going, which has uh, got many, many tensions, as I described in the state of our currency, but trying to accelerate a new one. And the new one, Whitney, as you've written about, is so – beyond strange, it's a transhumanist system, that it's very hard for many people to fathom what these guys are up to, because it involves many different industries and many different actions. Um, But it literally means building out a smart grid into the intimate levels of our lives and bodies. You know, and it's hard for most people to believe that anybody would want to use new technology to do it. So they're headed in uh, to a very different governance and management models. They're literally changing us from markets and democracy into technocracy that requires very highly central control. And of course, the question, if you're the central bankers, is how do you market the system? You know, the world is not ready to have another financial crisis in the in the process of re-engineering to a whole new system. So the you know, we, we have come up with yet another invisible enemy. This time it's not terrorists, it's viruses. And not to say that there aren't some real serious health things going on at the same time, but uh, essentially a healthcare crisis is being used as a marketing tool to engineer this going direct reset. Um, we also have an effort by the World Economic Forum to engage a part of the population in a conversation, which I see as, you know, mostly a distraction, but it's a great way to run trial balloons and keep everybody away from the central bankers who are very busy trying to do something which is... As gruesome as it is, it's very hard to do. So um, what we're watching is a global switch of the of the fundamental financial train tracks that we use as a global society to trade and to transact at both the retail and wholesale level. Um, if you look at what's going on in the United States, we ha- are about to switch teams and the new team will roll out and push this reset globally in the governance structure very, very aggressively Uh it's going to look like a financial tsunami Um, but of course it's going to be combined with what i would expect is going to be an even more vicious healthcare crisis right well i think it's pretty clear that the biden administration once they are established will basically uh steamroll (laughs) their agenda over all of us regardless of what anyone says or attempt to do so um and how that goes obviously depends on the reaction of the people, but something you brought up earlier that I think is pretty interesting is the marketing aspect of this currency reset, because recently we've seen um, certain global oligarchs, um, you know, talk about uh, the need to create a new economic system. Some of them refer to it um, as inclusive capitalism. And so um, (laughs) one of the, (laughs) one of the leaders of this um, is an organization called, uh, I believe, the Council for Inclusive Capitalism that is actually a collaboration uh-huh. between the Vatican and, you know, you have, um, for example, a member of the Board of Trustees of the World Economic Forum and the CEO of Salesforce, uh, Mark Benioff on there. You have Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. You have the Lauder family from Estee Lauder Companies, CEOs of MasterCard Visa, Bank of America, BP, um, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, and they're attempting to basically all of them with the Pope draft out, you know, this uh, 
new form of capitalism under the moral guidance of, of Pope Francis. Um, but it, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, um, you know, I mean, people like you and me find that totally ridiculous, um, obviously, but it, it, it shows that they're trying to make this marketing push sort of trying to say, yet yeah, capitalism has failed um, and, and things like this and that we need to create this new system. And they're trying to use a lot of these words that I think are meant really to appeal to the progressive left in the United States or people that are left leaning and trying to get them behind this, which is also interesting too when you look at this domestic terror pivot going on right now. It seems like they're right. also marketing that to that same uh, political demographic in the United States. So I was wondering about um, some of your views about um, you know that marketing push, whether it's from this council Council for Inclusive Capitalism or the World Economic Forum, which has a lot of similar uh, tactics talking about inclusivity, sustainability, and things like this. Um, you, you know, I, I was uh, curious as to your thoughts on, on those marketing efforts and whether or not you think they'll be successful. So I was very interested in exactly precisely what they were planning to do. So I went to the website to study uh, you know, the details of what they're, what they're proposing, you know, beyond the press release. And it was very interesting, Whitney, I had to approve, I had to click the terms and conditions, which were basically a pledge of allegiance to their values and principles, which were still not clear to me. And I said, I can't do this. I can't pledge allegiance. (laughs) If, if I don't understand something, I can't pledge allegiance, but it was really a, you know, you had to pledge. And so I said, well, I guess I can't, I can't, you know, so I've never been able to drill down and see the details of what they're talking about, but I will let, let me not take them, but things like this. Cause I just published a big wrap up on ESG investing and which is the same kind of philosophy that they're promoting. And what is phenomenal is if you understand the federal credit. So you've done a great amount of work looking at what the federal credit does and how it engineers inequality, you know, and, um, you know, sort of how the system works and the contracts work and the money works. What you know is the governmental structures are being used to engineer phenomenal amounts of central control in a way that's not economic and certainly is not in the principles of capitalism, you know, because it's, uh, you know, I keep telling people we're getting, we're getting capitalism confused with organized crime here. And um, so if you understand where the inequality is being engineered and how it's used, the federal credit mechanism and the central bank treasury mechanisms are used to sort of engineer the economy and engineer inequality. What is really funny is to see the people who've made fantastic amounts of money from engineering this inequality talking about inclusive capitalism. Because what I would say is inclusive capitalism comes about by lawful interactions. And when you run the economy on an illegal and lawless basis, engage in massive amounts of crime and warfare, you then turn around and require everybody to engage in whether it's ESG investing or, or, or um, uh, you know, inclusive cap- – there's a hypocrisy here which is so frightening – you wonder whether they don't understand what the system is or whether, you know, they just assume we're so stupid. I'll never forget one of the magical moments to me during the Yellow Vest movement was Macron, to his credit, went out on the streets and tried to talk to the Yellow Jackets. And he would engage in these conversations with them, and they had this look of absolute horror because they realized 
he had no idea how the economy works. <laughs> <laughs> Even though and, he was a banker you know, before, right? <laughs> right. You, I used to be an investment banker on Wall Street. So now you come up a very limited ladder and you're just engineering transactions, which are fed by this federal credit mechanism that's rigging everything. So you really don't understand. When I, when I left Washington, I moved to Hickory Valley, Tennessee, which is a farming community. And I spent, you know, 10 years in an economy where you have to sell it for more than it costs you make it and government's gonna, not going to show up and save you. You know, it's a very different world. And if you've ever run a business, you know, and or tried to be an independent journalist, you know, you got to make the economics work. So they're sitting there in the street talking with Macron and they're realizing this guy has not a clue. <laughs> about, you know, these are people who get up every morning, they have to make the plumbing work, they have to make the electricity work, they have to make the home building work, they have to make the roads work, they have to, you know, so they understand productivity. And a lot of what, you know, has happened in the last five years is not populism, it's a productivity backlash. It's people who know what it takes to, to get up and do the world's business, and they don't want central control, because it's very wasteful economically. I mean, that's the magic secret in here, when you try and run things on a central basis, it's unbelievably depressing to the real economy. If we could, in theory, practice civilization and have much freer markets and much freer liquidity, the wealth on this planet could be many, many multiples of what it is. Right. Now, there, there are a whole variety of reasons why the people who run things want to maintain central control you know, including for legitimate reasons of risk management. But we've gotten ourselves into a bind as a human race where they're trying to make it work for them and we don't understand what's really going on. And the cycle of disrespect between the leadership and us has gotten, uh, you know, to unbearable, it's gotten to unbearable place. And, and they kind of feel the way to get us to go along with their economic plan is to have a healthcare crisis or some of these other things. So, you know, I talk a lot about invisible enemies. So they're big on in, invisible enemies and divide and conquer. And we're seeing that work now, but uh -huh. here's the reality. The reality is the economy absolutely needs a reset. And the question is, are we going to have a reset that leads to a human civilization where we decentralize money creation and bring the money creation back to a place of integrity because right now it's in the sewer and or are we going to have a transhumanist society where we continue to allow the central bankers to have a monopoly on printing money and and basically they make it work with complete and utter control and it's not you know it's not inclusive capitalism it's slavery well, I, I think what they may mean by inclusive capitalism is that we will all be equally included in the neo-feudal underclass while they're on top. I mean, maybe that's what they mean <laughs> by, by inclusive. Um, and and they, they know what it really means and the rest of, you know, they're hoping people don't really catch on. But anyway, as far as the central bank goes, um, it looks like they're planning to move away from rather money printing and moving into cryptocurrencies. We've uh, pretty much had the, the Federal Reserve openly admit that they're researching the possibility of a digital dollar. And we've seen several other central banks uh, talk about creating, um, you know, central bank controlled cryptocurrencies. So I was wondering right. if I could get your... Um, your thought on on cryptocurrencies as it relates to uh, these moves being made by central banks, but also 
Um, you know, there are uh, several individuals and activists who were very adamant that cryptos could actually be a way to decentralize and sort of uh, reset the economy and, and currencies for the people. So um, what what uh, what are your thoughts on that? So here's the thing, what you've got to have with any if we move to a system where we're printing on a decentralized basis, you've got to be able to run that with integrity. So you've got to have hardware that they don't control. Right now, part of the problem is they control the hardware. And in my experience, when Mr. Global controls the hardware, they're going to control your cryptocurrency. Um, one of the reforms I keep mentioning is one that was proposed by Bill Binney, which I think, you know, if we're going to start to print the ideal community or decentralized currencies are both physical and digital. You know, you have mm-hmm. both components um, and, and you have liquidity in the physical world, but you also have liquidity in the digital world. Bill Binney once said to me, he said, what we ought to do is get all the homeschoolers and all the schools and all the teachers to teach the young people encryption systems. He said, if every community is creating hundreds of homegrown encryption systems, it's going to drive them crazy. <laughs> That's certainly true. <laughs> they would not like that. <laughs> so, so part of this is, um, you know, we need the rebel commander plan of doing our own systems, but also to the extent we're using their hardware finding ways of bollocksing them up and, and staying privacy. Cause it's going to come down to the, uh, you know, how do we create the integrity of the systems? Um, and so now if you look at the cryptos, they're planning, they're not currency. So if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is functioning as a currency. Um, if you look at what they're playing, what the central banks are planning is something that can be turned on and off. And if you don't behave, uh-huh. it can be turned on and off and it's going to be implemented with force whether it's the injections or other aspects of how they build out the digital system into your community, into your home, and into your person in, in a way that violates your sovereignty. So we're talking at a minimum of, of uh, violating your electromagnetic sovereignty, but also your physical sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So um, any any that's a control system. That's a slavery system. And it's implemented and controlled by force. And it's going to bring about a much higher level of um, compromise of individual sovereignty where literally, you know, your money will only work, let's say, within five miles from your house or your money will only work on certain kinds of transactions. Right. So we're talking about uh, combining the Chinese social credit system with uh with a form of financial, it's it's not, again, this is not a currency. It's a credit at the company store, and it's a control system. Yeah, well, that's definitely, um, you know, where this is going. But uh, for now, I mean, just yesterday we had the announcement of the Microsoft, Salesforce, Oracle, you know, all of these um, tech companies very closely tied to the U.S., U.S. government creating what they call the Vaccine Credential Initiative in cooperation with something called the Common Projects Foundation that's very closely tied um, to the World Economic Forum. And basically what they announced is a push to accelerate something that um, we people that were looking for anyway could have seen coming, which is this push to combine these digital vaccination records um, with digital wallets and also a digital biometric ID system. So now we're seeing that escalate even further, especially as these uh, vaccination records are now uh, partnered with major airways like um, 
Lufthansa, United Airlines among uh, Virgin Atlantic, I believe among among several others. So now we're already seeing um, in the very beginning of 2021 of these things coming together when just last year they were they were conspiracy. So the whole trans what I think what they're trying to do is things that they had done previously as well in the sense where they're trying to introduce these things in phases sort of incrementally, but in a much faster way than it has been um, in years past where they're, you know, definitely the, the increments are, are much shorter um, in time period, but they're definitely not trying to throw everything at, uh, at us at once. So they can still tell the people trying to warn everyone uh, that we're all crazy conspiracy theorists or something to that effect until they end up actually announcing that, yes, this is, this is where things are going. So, um, as far, um, as that, as that current push that we're at now, um, the digital, uh, health passports being tied to wallets and biometric IDs, a lot of those were piloted, uh, first in either refugee communities, uh, through, uh, the World Food Program, um, in Africa, things like that. Now we're seeing it, uh, being rolled out globally. Um, so, um, what are your thoughts on, um, how that system's likely to play out? Do you see there being, uh, resistance to that? And, uh, what do you think would be some ways that people could resist, um, those types of, uh, this type of system they're trying to, uh, push out? So they're trying to accelerate the implementation of the new system. That's part of what's going on. And one of their most successful tactics, think carrot and stick, is to cut off and consolidate income under their control. Mm -hmm. So you you cause, you announce all the small businesses are non-essential. Everybody can leave the small businesses and go shop at Costco and Walmart. So the cash flows move from the independent producers and distributors into their publicly traded stocks. And as that happens, the independent producers go into a debt trap. So they have overhead, they have families to feed, they have businesses that still have debt on the books. And so you try and put them in an economic corner and force them to a point where they become financially dependent. You're basically trying to force everybody into ultimately a universal basic income by essentially making it impossible for them to provide for themselves, you know, outside your system. Again, this is back to central control. And that's why, in fact, if you look at the economics the destruction of wealth is so great in what they're doing that where we can find the ability to circulate currency and money locally, as well as do our own food, do our own energy. In fact, we have the possibility, you know, freedom builds a lot more wealth and peace builds a lot more wealth in this system. The system is very oppressive and expensive. The question for people listening to this is where can I find a group of people who are sufficiently unmind controlled to sit down and start working on circulating our own money. And I always tell people, look, you don't need an organization. Just get out your local coins, stockpile local coins and your gold and silver coins and just do it. Just start using them. Now, you know, then get the encryption systems going and figure out how way, whether it's time banking or money, you can also circulate digitally locally, but on a more private basis and go from there Step number one is where's your fresh food going to come from? So, and, and I've never met a local community with rare exception that couldn't significantly improve their economy by building uh, much more local food. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, especially now that it's come out that Bill Gates is now the largest uh, owner of U.S. farmland. <laughs> 
um, which is, uh, really crazy to, to think about. Um, but in the, in the short term, uh, I, you know, a lot of people, especially if we're talking about currencies, a lot of my listeners are, you know, living in the United States and are, you know, curious about what's going to go on with the dollar. Of course, the dollar is the, uh, has been for several decades the uh, world reserve currency. It currently uh, looks like it, that <laughs> system is uh, quite precarious um, for, for various reasons. So, um, you know, this controlled demolition of the economy, obviously, in order to do that and, and destroy currency, you would have to d- destroy the uh, world reserve currency at some point, uh, or at least... Um, you know, demolish it internally and then publicly reveal that it's been uh, totally wrecked. So um, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, how the dollar will play out in uh, over the course of this year or so? So the dollar is much stronger than it looks, um, you know, but the system does what what is at risk here is not so much the dollar reserve currency, although it's got to be evolved and, and reengineered. What is at risk is you've been maintaining a false prosperity in the G7 populations, mm-hmm. and you've been doing it primarily with the China and Asia trade, and China and Asia are not going to play that game anymore. And so you're, you're, you're looking at your general population and saying, okay, how am I going to get them to change without killing me, especially because you've had a financial coup d'etat and there's, they've, you know, they've shifted away so much money. So, so you've got you know, what's at threat is the, is the general prosperity that the population has enjoyed. Now, what they're going to do, what I think Biden's going to do is um, number one target, they may not say this uh, too loudly publicly, is to bring in the guns. Because uh, the, the number two target, a la Gates owning the farmland, is they want the real estate in the land. So America, and uh, particularly the Mississippi Valley and the Great Plains, is one of the great breadbaskets of the world. So um, they're absolutely after the real estate. And um, if you look at the Green New Deal, basically the Green New Deal is air cover for we're going to come and take all your real estate. You just saw... You just saw AOC come out with this thing about the Southern states have been suppressed and we are going to turn that around. And all I could think is, uh, they went to farmland. Here we come. Yeah. She's been really interesting lately with her whole, you're either with us or you're the mob, the rehash of George W. Bush's you're either with us or the terrorists. It's quite amazing, honestly, (laughs) to see some of the things that come out of her mouth lately. Uh, really it's beyond. So then I think the next thing they're going to do is they're going to approve in the Senate. Now that they control the Senate, they're going to approve two things. One is the domestic terrorist law, which we need to talk about. But the other is the SDRs for the IMF. They're, the House in 2020 voted the $3 trillion that they've been trying to do since 2008 for the special depository receipts for the IMF. If the Senate approves that, then the IMF has the money they need to wander around the world and buy everybody into the digital system. You're also going to see the Fed offer swap lines in exchange for countries around the world agreeing to go along with the system. So uh, this is going to be a financial tsunami. Uh, and I think with it is going to, is going to be a pump of the cryptos because they want as many people as possible using and getting in and getting enthusiastic and making money on cryptos because that's part of building out the crypto system, sort of getting everybody into a trap. Because remember, once you, once the central bankers bring out their cryptos, they have a, a lot of ways of wiping out the whole community if they want or consolidating it. So 
Um, so we're going to watch this financial tsunami uh, of financial methadone come out both domestically and globally, and it's going to be carrot sticks. You're going to try and buy everybody into your system, whether it's with a universal basic income or, you know, real estate deals in the opportunity zones or, you know, various kind of transactions. There'll be a new big stimulus bill pretty quickly once Biden goes in. And and at the same time, you're going to have sticks so that if you don't play ball and take the financial methadone and do what you're told and, you know, inject whatever they're injecting into our veins, um, you know, there's going to be a series of sticks. So they're planning on going full speed ahead. It was one mm-hmm. of the reasons they wanted so aggressively to change administrations. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Um, going back to your, the point you made about the IMF, I think another tactic they're likely to use is something they've been trying to do um, actually with Argentina uh, since the early 2000s and the economic collapse happened there, which is debt for land swaps, which then makes it quite easy yep. for them to obtain um, large amounts um, of real estate um, uh, via that method. Uh, they haven't been successful yep. in Argentina before, but <laughs> given everything that's gone on recently, they, they may be. So we'll see how that plays out. There was um, a series of great interviews and research done during the 90s on the games the IMF played in Latin America, both by Naomi Klein and Greg Palast. And um, you really saw the model there. And Klein and her husband made a documentary called The Take, which we're going to use as one of the movies we're just about to publish with John Titus, uh, a big piece for the 2020 annual wrap-up on the Going Direct Reset. And we have movies on economic change. And one is the take on the games they played in Argentina. And I think if you want to understand how to navigate the next year, looking at the games they played in Latin America, as well as the games they played on the rape of Russia, you know, we've done a lot on the Salir report about the rape of Russia and how it worked. And, um, you know, there's no doubt about it. They, they believe in disaster capitalism and shock treatment. What they want to, when they want to do a radical reengineering, you know, this is how it right. works. So I think the Argentine example is a very good one for people to understand. Right. I mean, they, I mean, their economy basically collapsed. It was really uh, a wild time to read about. I mean, I was quite young when it happened and I wasn't living in South America, but I've heard a lot about it since then. And it's really, you know, um, it, it's, it's important to remember that people have lived through economic collapse before. Maybe that's kind of a foreign idea to a lot of um Americans or people in some other countries that haven't lived through that, but looking to those uh, past events and examples may be very instructive uh, for what's coming. I don't think their economy collapsed. I think it was destroyed. It was collapsed. Well, uh, intentionally. Yeah. yeah. Starting with the the Menem administration in the early 90s is really when that started to to pick up. And all throughout the 1990s, it was really um, a very crazy, uh, uh, it was definitely engineered to happen. Uh, I definitely agree with that. But uh, really quickly, I want to pivot back to um, UBI, because this is another one of those things that was actually um, originally dreamt up, right, by the um, the father of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, um, but recently, uh, just in the past couple of years, has be- become championed by the progressives who you would think would um, be very opposed to anything that was promoted by by Friedman at one point. So it's interesting to see someone like Andrew Yang come up and and promote this whole idea. And I think what a lot of people don't really get about, at least that are proponents now of UBI, what they don't get is that this is being coupled with it with an effort to completely automate the economy. So it won't be just a basic income that you can supplement 
with your job, it will be your only income. So um, do you have anything to add to that about UBI? Do you agree, et cetera? So this is part of a, if you combine this with a digital financial transaction system, which is a control system, and the kind of surveillance we're dealing with, uh, what Glenn Greenwald called the one-way mirror, you're you're talking about making people entirely financially dependent and putting them in a situation where if they don't do exactly what they're told, you can basically cut them out. In other words, they can lose their ability to feed themselves or function and basically die by financial shunning. So you're talking about a a complete physical, legal, financial control, and everybody's going to be entirely dependent. So that's why I say, again, it's a slavery system. It's like the you know, the serfs have to shop at the company store and they can, you know, they get the money that the company tells them they can have and they can shop at the company store. And if they don't do what they're told, you know, they starve. Right. And I think that's a continuation of sort of these coercion tactics that we're already seeing now, um, particularly in relation uh, with the vaccine. What they're what they've announced that they're going to do is basically tie um, federal assistance from the government, whether it's from food stamps or some other sort of program to having received the COVID-19 vaccination, uh, obviously, which is a multi-dose vaccine. So uh, multiple injections, not just one in order to be able to access those services and things like that, um, which is just... Um, Oh, it's, it, it, I mean, the, the extent of, <laughs> uh, of this is just really... Um, uh, so let me just say one thing that, you know, the wonderful advantage I have is having worked, if you look at the people who are engineering the going direct uh, reset, I can't tell you how many former colleagues and friends are in that group. <laughs> wow. It's kind of funny. Well, it's kind of funny to watch when, you know, I have an online book called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, and I describe sort of my refusing to go along and then getting booted out of the establishment because I said, you know, I don't want to be a part of transhumanism. I don't want to be a part of making money, destroying, you know, this model, as far as I'm concerned, is a bunch of hooey. I want no part of it. You know, and I sort of, I tell the story of how, you know, I realized, oh, I was going to lose my locker in the underground base (laughs) (laughs) if I got booted out. But the, you know, what, what you've got is, it's hard for most healthy people to imagine what it's like to be Mr. Global and manage the planet and get to the point where you've lost all empathy with your fellow man. And, you know, the more, the more you centralize the system, you know, the more frustrated you get, the more you're managing risks that are secret. You know, part of this is we're choking on all the secrecy and the amount of money we've built up. It's a great point we are being poisoned by our own secrecy and we're being poisoned by our own success at using the media for propaganda and mind control. So we are, we are literally getting poisoned by the success of these various things. And, and the question for all of us is can enough of us fathom that where our wonderful former colleagues and friends and leadership want to go is literally against life. In other words, the reason the economy doesn't make sense right now is it's out of alignment with life. And if you look at some of the stuff that the inclusive capital people are saying, they're right. We have to get back into alignment with life. The problem is they're going further away from life. Their transhumanism is doubled down on anti-life. Yeah. And I think the question for the rest of us is, are there enough people who can fathom 
that these guys are about to destroy our civilization. And, and what we need to do is we need to come up, you know, they don't believe that we will be responsible and take responsibility to make things work. We need to come up with a people's reset um, and, and get this thing to work, including attracting many of them back onto the, you know, the pro-human, pro-life team. Absolutely. So, right. So, so part of what is happening in this process is we're starting to see a very healthy discussion. In the second quarter wrap-up, um, I mailed you a copy, I think, but I, you probably don't have it yet. Um, we did a first section called Pandemic Heroes, and it was all the doctors and scientists and lawyers. And in fact, you, Whitney, are one of the uh, the Solari Pandemic Heroes. Oh, cool. <laughs> and <laughs> and you. what you see is you have, you have such amazing, incredible talent. Some of the most talented doctors, scientists, journalists, uh, lawyers, activists in the world, and they're all leaving the establishment and saying, no, this won't work. We're not going along. We need another plan. And what's starting to happen for the first time in 20 years that I've seen is significant talent breaking out of the establishment and saying, a bunch of hooey, let's come up with something better. And if you look at what those people accomplished in 2020, they saved millions of lives by by getting out there, by digging for the truth, finding real solutions, getting real therapies for people who are getting sick. Um, you know, they've saved millions of lives, but it was their transparency and their collaboration and their courage. Many people got, you know, they got their licenses pulled, they got fired. Yeah. One of my favorite lines of the year was Dr. Stella Emanuel from Houston, who had great success with hydroxychloroquine, and she was from Africa. So she knew all of Africa has been using it for decades. It's very safe. Anyway, so they sent some hit guy from the local Houston TV station to interview her. And he's really, I mean, this guy's a slither. And he, he says, well, you know, if you keep using this and saying this, you could lose your license. And she leaned over and looked at him and she said, let me ask you something. How many people should I let die so I can keep my license? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, th and I like that, that lady. That, that's oh, blunt. That, he deserved that. <laughs> he deserved that. Well, that's what it comes down to. Are we all going to turn into death killers? Is that what we're going to do? You know, I had the same moment in Washington. I turned to one of the guy I had running one of the um, one of our big accounts, and I said, you know, how many? Because the government, Andrew Cuomo, was trying to get us to do something that was both illegal. And would make it easier for HUD to, to throw lots of innocent families out on the street. And I turned to this guy and I said, how many people, sh how many children should go homeless so we can keep our contract? Yeah. And he, at first he looked at me, he said, oh, don't be like that. I said, no, tell me, how many children should go homeless? And he looked at me and he said, why am I doing this? I said, I don't know. It seems to me, you know, there's always something to do. We don't have to make money going in and building our own prison. And that's what I would say, though. You know, the secret sauce here is, one, if we ran the economy according to the People's Reset on a human basis, there's a lot more wealth to go around. That's number one. But number two, Whitney, if you look at who's building the trap, we're building the trap. <laughs> well, we're allowing ourselves to be used to build the trap, I think. And what you were just mentioning earlier, I mean, I think that's how the system's been so successful for so long, is forcing people to choose between careerism and humanity, basically. And we're at a point where, you know, it's such a critical juncture that, like, it's not, 
Um, you know, we're basically choosing that um, as a species now. Um, are we going to choose, you know, being able to uh, maintain the the current system and our current overlords just because, you know, it's comfortable, we know it, and we might be able to go up their, you know, ladder for now. We think if we play along and help them, we'll be included in their elite bubble or whatever uh, versus, <laughs> you know, humanity. Well, there definitely are people that, that think that, that think, oh, well... You know, if I aid them and I back them up, you know, then I will, um, <clears throat> I'll get to be a part of the, of the fun club. And there's a lot of mainstream media journalists that are in that category, I think. Right. But unfortunately for them, Google and also, um, <laughs> the government are experimenting with how to have, uh, create AI algorithms that create the news for us. So they'll be out of a job exactly. anyway. Um, so that'll be Every, quite a surprise. Everybody- Everybody who's building the prison right now is going to get thrown overboard. Everyone. No exceptions. Well, uh, that, I, that's, that definitely seems, uh, well, I hope that ends up being the case because, um, you know, uh, they, uh, people at this point that are, that are, based on what we saw play out last year and the just extreme economic suffering and mental and emotional, you know, consequences of, of what's happened that are continuing to just blindly serve this group, um, you know, definitely deserve some sort of wake up call for lack of a better uh, term for it. So um, really quickly, I wanted to pivot back to some stuff that we've brought up a couple times, which is the transhumanist role of this new uh-huh. um, economic system. And a lot of people, um, myself and yourself uh, included, have uh, reported a lot about the uh, role of vaccines in this, particularly what are being called vaccines, but aren't really necessarily vaccines as people tend to uh, understand them because of the introduction of this new vaccine technology. Uh, mRNA, uh, DNA vaccines may not be included now, but DARPA and the DNA vaccine company recently teamed up for a new COVID-19 therapy, so we may see it uh, eventually anyway. But um, I know that you um, have written about how the so-called COVID-19 vaccine isn't really um, a vaccine in, in the normal sense. So um, I was int- I was wondering if you'd uh, be able to, um, you know, expand on that a little bit. Sure. Last year, I wrote an article called The Injection Fraud. Um, as an investment advisor, I knew very little about uh, vaccination. And then as an investment advisor, I started running into tremendous amounts of financial problems and destruction resulting from vaccine injury. And um, I started to discover how extraordinary the vaccine injury was in the United States, literally threatening the future of our civilization. Um, It was a pretty shocking 10-year education on my part. And I started to dig in to figure out what's this about? What's this about? Why is this happening? And um, and so when when COVID-19 happened, I became convinced that the goal uh, or one of the main goals was to do a whole new round of injections. And having spent the last year trying to understand what I describe as creepy technology, um, which is nanoparticles. It's a good word for it. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. creepy. We have in the state of our currencies, we have a creepy technology and ingestible section where we cover it. And then um, at Solari for news trends and stories, we have lots of uh, table presses where we collect and maintain headlines to try and understand what's going on. And we literally have one database that's just creepy technology because there's so much being prototyped. Yeah. And 
if you, you know, part of the struggle of understanding the creepy technology is I don't think these guys have settled and uh, and chosen a technology, let alone feel confident that it works. So we're in a prototyping phase. Absolutely. Which makes, mm-hmm. yeah, which makes things very noisy. But essentially what they're trying to do is to be able to, to track, um, to interact with their clouds, and I believe to entrain and mind control. And so you're trying to build the digital train tracks into every human being. Um, I even had one person the other day tell me there's one theory where they can, um, if they get the digital train tracks working, they can also use our movement to create energy and help finance the energy, you know, because the crypto financial system. Yeah, Microsoft uh, actually put out a patent for that. They applied for it in 2019. It was granted last year about using uh, anything from body heat to brain waves uh, tracking your eye movements when you watch commercials and rewarding you by using uh, those that activity from your body to uh, mine cryptocurrency. And obviously this would have to be done through some sort of wearable. And what do you know? Uh, now they're introducing wearables. I think the first one that's like uh, like this uh, was just announced um, a couple weeks ago, but it is a combination of a digital vaccine record, a digital payment system, and a biometric identity so it definitely seems, uh, you know, for the people that said that was conspiracy theory last year, um, I'd encourage you to look look into that. The company that produced that, by the way, is called um, Fly Wallet. The wearable is called Keeble, uh, for those that are interested in, in looking at that. But what's really amazing about the vaccine industry is that, you know, they're constantly granted liability by the federal government for their products, which is really unique right. in a way in the sense that, um, they don't have any incentive to ensure that their products are safe, um, because they're, they can't really be sued for it. Um, you know, there, there's the, the vaccine courts, but it's very hard to win in those situations. Very few people end up reporting because of all the, the red tape and the obstacles that they create. Uh, to doing that. So it's really uh, unique in a way among industries um, because, you know, they don't have to really worry very much about the safety of their products. And even if it's proven to be unsafe, it doesn't necessarily get taken off the market. And in many cases, you know, if, if a vaccine is um, uh, taken off the market in the United States, it's still marketed elsewhere, largely developing right. countries. A, a good example of that would be um, the polio vaccine, uh, that is used in places like, um, South America, Africa, uh, which uses a live polio virus has been caught actually creating new cases of polio. Whereas in the U.S., that particular vaccine was taken off the market and the current polio vaccine there is a, is an inactivated or inert dead version of the polio virus. Um, so it's, um, just a really crazy industry when you think about it, but you know, criticism of the industry and how it's set up, um, is just treated as being anti concept of vaccine, which is just, I think, a really insidious argument, especially when you're talking about the vaccines coming out now that are using this unlicensed, untested technology. Um, and, you know, it, it would make, it's a reasonable position to want more time to see how that's going to play out, how it's going to affect people's health, uh, when it's under, you know, it hugely understudied even by, um, mainstream media accounts, right? So it's definitely uh, wild to be accused of uh, being called anti-vaccine or uh, anti-science and all of that stuff. Um, you know, the way those words, uh, those terms have been used over the past year is uh, really astounding, particularly the anti-science 
um, accusation, uh, because a lot of those people don't, um, you know, only really, uh, what they mean is your anti-state sponsored science in a lot of cases. So if you look at the, uh, the death rate on COVID-19 and you look at the successful treatments, uh, on early intervention, we're, we're talking about a medical, uh, situation that doesn't require a vaccine. It doesn't, a vaccine isn't necessary. Um, and today, coronavirus vaccines have never been effective. That's number one. But number mm-hmm. two, I think we are looking at an injection fraud here because the injections that are being proposed for COVID-19 are not vaccines. And I think the reason they're calling them vaccines is, uh, is so they can get that indemnification from all liability. It's part of the economic model. Mm. So if you want to give something that's going to harm a lot of people, you know, the private companies who do that are going to want freedom from liability. And I think you're trying to market this as a vaccination so you can get that liability, but it's a fraud. Um, and one of the reasons, a perfect example, Pfizer, which has a long history of major settlements for um, fraudulent marketing. I mean, they have a real track record. They of do. Spent billions of dollars in payments for fraudulent market, enough that I would say that's their business model. <laughs> And, and the yeah. money they pay the Department of Justice is simply a kickback from the profits of their business model, uh, which the government is participating with. But if you look at the Pfizer vaccination, they will not disclose all the ingredients. Now, that's not a medicine. You know, a sec- secret ingredients, and we've if you look at just the, the material adverse events we've had so far in the deaths, uh, so far, and my understanding from doctors who are knowledgeable about this is the real danger is after the second shot. So if you look at the deaths and the and the harm from the first shot, um, combined with secret ingredients, in, in, combined with freedom from liability, whatever that is, it's not a medicine. And so that gets back to, you know, what's in this stuff and where are they trying to put it into our bodies, which I think is, um, you know, is a is is absolutely at the core of the transhumanist question and system. Right. And something that's worth pointing out about this um about these COVID-19 vaccines also is that they are planning to make it this multi-dose vaccine um an annual affair. Uh we've heard the I I mean I've been I I've reported a lot on the vaccine over the past several months. So um I've seen a lot of this pop up in um in mainstream media outlets from the pharmaceutical firms themselves or for different uh, health ministries um, in various countries, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K. or what have you, that it's going to be annual like the flu shot is supposed to be. And I think your what you said earlier about this right now being sort of like a prototyping thing for uh, potential transhumanist applications of this and what have you um, is very accurate, particularly if they try and rope people into having this be a regular injection, they can constantly update or or modify it to get the uh, end result they want um, uh, right. in, in this particular case, which is really, um, I mean, it's so surreal to talk about this stuff um, because it just sounds <laughs> well, crazy you know, when it comes out I, of your mouth you know. and then you're like, but this is how things are. So <laughs> if you, if you worked in wall street, and if you worked in Washington and you did so tracking the big money, it doesn't sound crazy at all. I mean, this does not sound crazy to me because, you know, if you go back and you look at the history of slavery, the reason we stopped the slave trade was because we couldn't perfect the collateral and we couldn't put down the rebellions. And now you're talking about solving those problems technologically. And the reality is, you know, they, they're doing this because they can 
you know, as long as we pretend that this is not happening, it's going to keep happening. I'll never forget at the beginning of 2020, the most prescient call I ever made in my career, I told the Solaria Report subscribers that the big question before us is what are we going to do about the Beck brothers? The Beck brothers being the characters in Yellowstone who constantly break the law to get their way. And so my question was, you know, for 50 years in America, we pretended, you know, that we, we just keep allowing the Beck brothers to get away with it and they get worse and worse and worse. If you go back and you listen to the guys who, you know, killed Kennedy, they couldn't believe they got away with it. They got away with it. And, and they, on the Iran-Contra fraud, they couldn't believe they got away with it. So they, you know, they keep doubling down because lawlessness works. Crime works. I mean, you've covered the crime tremendously. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite articles and series on the injection fraud was your article about all the contracting on Operation Warp Speed. And when you look at all the contracting and how it was designed to allow God knows what to go on yeah. in secrecy. Yeah. You you just when you when you drill into the nuts and bolts, I just love that that was a one or several articles. It was just like, you go, Whitney Webb. You, you <laughs> go into the contracts and the money that's being spent to engineer this and you say, This stinks to high heaven. Well, that's another way reason why it's really hard to call what's going on in the US right now a, a vaccination program because you're having the military <laughs> and, and the intelligence community run it. Um, and the only public health officials there have are, are running public private partnerships with Silicon Valley, or they were running right. a sur a post vaccination surveillance systems on behalf of Bill Gates. And those are the two uh, people uh, from the CDC and the FDA, respectively, that are leadership in Operation Warp Speed. Every everyone else is military, um, or someone like Monsef Salawi, who, of <laughs> course, is uh, his big. Uh, the thing that gets him excited is bioelectronic medicine and uh, you know stimulating neurons with uh, injectable nanoparticles and things like that. And it's worth pointing out, you know, because of the involvement of the military here, DARPA has been working for years on a program called N3, which is basically about, um, you know, basically doing the same thing that, uh, you know, Elon Musk's brain chip will do, the Neuralink thing, but without invasive surgery. And the way it's done is by combining external magnets and, and electromagnetic forces in the external environment with uh, nanoparticles present in the human body. And if you actually bother to look at uh, how they describe their own vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines, you see things like lipid nanoparticles and all of this. So, you know, I mean, th they're not being very forthcoming about the ingredients in their vaccines and things like that. But when you have DARPA doing that sort of activity, when you have the vaccine coordinator um, for Operation Warp Speed being uh, DARPA's Matt Hepburn, uh, who uh, developed these uh, types of injectables when he was at DARPA, um, and including, you know, the, the Profusa chip for monitoring uh, your health from within your body and wearables and all of this stuff that they're rolling out now, you know, it, it's hard to not, uh, you know, scratch your head a little bit, um, especially in light of the other things that we, we have covered today. So, um, uh, I, I wanna, uh, wanted to spend some time towards the end of this podcast talking a little bit about current events in the U.S. right now, particularly mm -hmm. uh, the unrest in uh, the Capitol, uh, what is expected to take place on the 20th, um, the extreme militarization of the inauguration where it's going to be something like 20,000 troops um, in D.C. when Biden is inaugurated. Um, the, in, in the different legislation they're pushing and, and, and things like this, 
Um, so, um, you know, obviously a lot has happened in the past week or so, um, but uh, several people saw this push coming uh, years before, uh, so, you know, they've really been setting this up ever since DHS was created in a sense. Um, so I, um, you know, I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts, not only on last Wednesday's events, but, um, you know, uh, what other types of events uh, like that we can expect to see uh, going forward and uh, ultimately what you think this uh, coming war on domestic terror may look like and what it may mean for uh, Americans. So I think, you know, Biden has a long history of building the military, the, the prison industrial complex yes. and the <laughs> sort of central train tracks of mm -hmm. enforcement, whether it was the civil and criminal money penalties and the uh, the Patriot Act, et cetera. So you know, his role in judiciary was very much building the train tracks of the police states sort or of building the war on drugs out to the war on terror. So he has a long history here. I think January 6th was a reality TV show, was a staged mm -hmm. event. Um, we had a correspondent who went down and covered it, and her article on it says, I feel used, <laughs> because she was. You know, everybody down there was used to stage this event. Um, and, you know, it was very organized. The The Capitol Police basically showed people how to get in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they opened the gates and escort them in. Some of those videos are wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a very cheap, you know, it was very cheap. It was very obvious. It was very disgusting. And I think part of it was to get the Domestic Terrorism Act, but also, again, to make the victims, you know, blame the victims. So the people who stole the 21 trillion want to make sure these people don't get together and get it back. And the presidential election, to a certain extent, has been used as a distraction. Now, there has been a real competition and a real process. But essentially, all the people who should have been figuring out community currencies and growing a local food system yes. have gotten tricked into spending massive amounts of time on the squabble on the pro-centralization team as to who's going to control the federal and the FASB 56 spigot. And, um, you know, it's a terrible waste of their time. So... Uh, now, what's what's the administration going to do? They're going to try and use carrots and sticks. The carrots are all the financial methadone we talked about earlier, and then the stick is going to be the domestic terrorist law targeting uh, using all this kind of virtual signaling and other stuff um, and, and censorship through the social media and private corporations to terrorize anybody who puts up a fight. And the reality comes down to what you described earlier, which is can enough people, and it's only going to take about three and a half or four percent, it doesn't take a lot of people, realize what the real game is about and why, um, you know, whether we sneak around to push back or we push back boldly, you know, we cannot let this go down. And it's not just, in my opinion, Whitney, the fact that it's wrong or inhuman or bad for our children and grandchildren, I think these guys are going to fail. And I don't want to see my society, you know, bet the ranch and invest all its capital in a plan that's going to fail. Because that failure to me is unacceptable. That's why I left the establishment in the 90s. And that's why I think it is contingent on all of us to turtle forward, navigate this, and keep building a human civilization in alignment with the living model so that we have something when they fail.
No, I absolutely um, agree, but I think that's going to uh, require, and I and I think it is happening to an extent, um, that uh, a lot of uh, cultural perceptions of political power and agency in the U.S. really need to change. Um, a lot of mm-hmm. Americans are very conditioned to just, oh, well, as long as we get the right person in the White House or the right uh, party to have a majority in Congress – um, and things like that, that they will eventually fix everything. And we've been buying into that scam when fundamentally both parties are, are playing for the same team, right? Um, for decades and decades. And it's obviously, obviously something we can't do anymore. And I think it's really important. And I think this is happening to an extent too, that we can't rely on our national leadership to secure, um, our basic needs anymore. It's time to take that into, um, our own hands at the community level and, uh, be active participants in our, our own, you know, uh, communities and lives and, and economies in a way that a lot of Americans haven't really considered before. Um, and I think it's really imperative that we do that. But I think a lot of people now, particularly because of, of lockdowns and a lot of these policies and things like that, uh, have really been pushed into a situation where they don't have a choice. Whereas maybe a decade ago, people were like, yeah, well, you know, I have this job and it's cushy and I can do this and I can, you know, participate in this activity and things are comfortable. So I don't really feel like getting involved and in making the change. But now we're at sort of this crossroads where we don't really have a choice anymore and we have to stop looking for political saviors to pull us out of all of these uh, national binds um, and and start doing it ourselves. So here's the thing. If you think freedom is something you can get to by taking a pill, it's not going to happen. And um, my message to everyone is uh, death is not the worst thing that can happen here. So uh, a lot of Americans don't have personal experience with slavery. But um, if you look at where this is going, you know, to me, I have nothing to lose by fighting. Yeah. And, and you know, I went through 11-year litigation process, and I can't tell you how many times I was absolutely sure I was going to be dead within five seconds to 24 hours. And, uh, you know, and I have no problem doing that because if you look at what my alternative was, I really just don't want to be a slave. I'm very grumpy about that. So, and I, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be part of making other people slaves. So you have to understand that life is not fair. Life is difficult. This is a war and, um, and you have nothing to lose by fighting to win because the alternative of, you know, there's no, there's no middle of the road and there's no getting along with their, with their system. Their system is not going to work. So um, we're going to have to invent something else. And I'd rather die trying, floating around, you know, paddling around, building my ark than go down with the Titanic. Right. I think that's a that's a really good point because, you know, we're really at something that's not just going to affect, you know, the United States. You know, this is something that is really, um, you know, a crisis of the species, the future of the species. Right. You know, the future of like, you know, future generations globally um, will be extremely impacted by whatever happens now. And in the United States in particular, I mean, we are at such a critical juncture time-wise, um, particularly because of the censorship, because of, uh, you know, that, that, that not only have they limited our ability to meet physically, but now, you know, our ability to meet and organize and discuss online is being limited. Um, and obviously, if there are more events uh, following January 6th, which it seems likely, um, you know, I sort of describe that as the opening act for their war on domestic terror. There are sure to be more of these, um, 
you know, psyopy stage for media events or potentially a very uh, grave uh, false flag style thing, you know, a la Oklahoma City in 1995 or something like that, um, that we could see. But it's really, you know, um, in the United States in particular, we are really at a point where organization needs to start happening immediately if it right. hasn't already begun at the local level. You know, the U.S. government is talking about... Um, long-lasting power grid blackouts, things like that. You know, if you live in the U.S. and you're listening to this, you know, if that, if you wake up one morning and that happens and, you know, you hear through the radio or whatever that it could last a week or more, uh, what, who, who are you going to meet up with? What are you going to do? How are you going to ensure that, you know, your family is okay for that period of time and, and things like that? These are the things that we really, we, we have to start thinking about and, and preparing right. for. And it's really important. Absolutely. That we can't go Absolutely. this alone. We have to build community. And this is why the divide and conquer thing going on right now in the U.S. is so insidious. Um, because we right. need our local communities and our neighborhoods and, and, and small groups like that more than ever. And they're trying to have us divided over, you know, which candidate lawn sign we had up, um, <laughs> a couple months ago. Um, why the people at the top are taking us all to town. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, totally surreal. I just talked to a wonderful subscriber who a year ago I persuaded her to limit her budget on national politics to 10 hours for the year and instead build a greenhouse. And she's built this, I think it's like 75 feet long. It's huge. She built this huge greenhouse and it's kept her all embroiled all year long. She's paid absolutely no attention to the presidential election. And oh, now she's got nice. a beautiful, <laughs> yeah, she's got, not only is she has a beautiful greenhouse, but all our kids are showing up and working with her on it. So, you know, so uh, I had another guy tell me, you know, I, I didn't pay any attention to the presidential elections, but I did figure out which potato variety to use in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, that's ultimately more useful, I think, at the end of the day uh, <laughs> than watching the political theater uh, going on right now. Because honestly, it's gotten to the point, too, where like it's just so beyond scripted um that it's uh it's honestly difficult to watch like at this point i have to read transcripts of mainstream media interviews because it's just very difficult to watch all the you know watch them uh you know fake emote on <laughs> on tv and stuff like that it's really um well the thing that i'll tell you the thing that scares me is um so much of the g7 world the g20 world depends on the united states for their national security umbrella and you're watching a whole world in shock saying, you know, the United States is no longer under adult supervision and we can't depend on them for a national security umbrella because they've lost their minds. And this is a very dangerous thing. So if you look at the price we're paying globally for the shriek meter to make lots of money and have fun playing reality TV show, you know, they're making money. But I think if you look at the uh, the harm that's being done globally, it's pretty frightening. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely tend to agree with you there. So earlier in the um, podcast, just to wrap up here, um, you mentioned a couple of different solutions, uh, you know, and, and we've, we talked about a little more recently too, sort of uh, community building, decentralizing, um, you know, it talked about Bill Binney's suggestion on, on encryption and things like that. Are there any other um, solutions that you've come across to some of these issues that regular people can do at the local level and things like that? So, so there, there are hundreds of them and we have a ton of public information about it at Solari.com. I'm also going to do the first quarter wrap, wrap up on take, take action. 
but it really comes down to the most basic needs of your day-to-day life and whether or not you can source, whether it's your money, your food, your energy from people and organizations and companies that have integrity. So sit down, do a time budget for the year. Time is, is what's your most valuable resource in 2021. Sit down and, and, and say, okay, how can I get anything that doesn't have integrity, anything that doesn't give me energy out of my life and replace it with people and things that do have integrity? And again, that's going to come back to our networks and our, and our neighborhoods and, you know, whether it's who's our banker, who's our farmer, you know, who's, uh, who's providing the different kind of services we need for our day-to-day life, you know, just get the big guys out of your, out of your balance sheet and your income statement and start replacing them with people you can trust. So, um, our tagline at Solari is live a free and inspired life. So, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first, look at your time and start thinking about, okay, banks, food, energy, how can I get a more resilient, more healthy, more trustworthy, um, uh, you know, sort of ecosystem around me. And as I do that, I help the neighbors who want to cooperate with me do it. And we start to build resilience around us. Wonderful. Well, with that, um, I think it's a good place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Unlimited Hangout, Catherine. Uh, It was my pleasure. Can I say one other thing, Whitney? Oh, yeah, of course. So one of my favorite quotes is from Roger Penske. He says, speed costs money. How fast do you want to go? So everybody listening to this, if you really enjoyed it, I want you to do me a favor and go to Whitney's website and donate more money. Oh, well, well, that's really nice of you. But I, I do want to point out, too, that when you donate um, to Unlimited Hangout, you're not just supporting my work. We have several other contributors. We have Vanessa Beely, um, Johnny Vedmore, and, and some other great writers that I'm hoping to add soon. So, um, you know, independent media is very important to fight against the mainstream media narrative building. So anything you can do to help out, of course, uh, is greatly appreciated. And thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, nice plug. At no, the I end. have to make that. I have to make that plug because without good intelligence, we're not going to win. And I think what you and your colleagues are doing is providing terrific intelligence. So Whitney, thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up the episode and catch you guys next time. Bye.